The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Good morning. Welcome to Let's Talk Autism. With Shannon and Nancy. And I'm Shannon. And I'm Nancy. <laughs> it's a coincidence. Today I'm wearing the leopard. I'm the leopard person today. And, I, and I've got floral on today. Oh, I almost yeah. put leopard on. I got to be honest. That was the, that was sort of the, like what I was going for. And then I grabbed the, this is silky. And so it can be warm or cold. What I like fabrics that are like that. That'll keep right. you warm when you're cold and cool when you're hot. Um, so there we go. Uh, but you look lovely. Chilly, very chilly here in the mornings, right, Shannon? Yeah, it's that, like it really has changed. There's a snap in the weather now, even in Los Angeles. I personally love it. How about you? I like it too. I'm just getting used to it. It's pretty cold. The, I mean, 40s in the mornings, which yeah. is fine. Then it gets up to 80 in the yeah. afternoon and then goes back down to the 40s at night. But it's nice for a change. I like it because it's good sleeping weather. Yeah. And the light is a little bit uh, darker uh, later in the morning. It's good sleeping weather. Uh, I'm I'm a little on the tired side, so I'm fixated on the sleep. <laughs> I, yeah, I woke up again at four this morning. I've been having oh. a problem with early rising. I am so sorry to hear that. But before I forget, uh, this we're t we're pre-taping this show. Uh, it's actually, when you're watching this, you guys, it's Friday morning, but we're pre-taping this on Thursday afternoon. We want to be completely honest about that, but it's the day before. So it's pretty, um, up to the speed, but Nancy on, on Tuesday, you've got a pretty special event that's coming up. Do you want to talk to people about what you're going to be doing on Tuesday? Yeah. On Tuesday at five o'clock, uh, I'm going to be appearing on Ed Talks, which is presented by the Ed Asner Family Center. And the comp, the com, the conversation, I can't talk, Ed talks. <laughs> uh, the conversation will be about how making your mental health a top priority. Yes. Um, yes. Because it is mental health month, uh, I hear. And I yes. think this past two, day, two days ago, it was mental health awareness day. And so I'm going to be talking about some of my own struggles. Um, with issues of depression, anxiety, and addiction being- We're, we're very proud of you and, and all that you have come through. Thank you. And I'm gonna be discussing that because it's something that, especially as parents of special need kids, um, we need to be very cognizant of the fact that there's more of a prevalence of mental health issues with special needs parents. Yeah, and, 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 and then add a pandemic. And during the pandemic, it's become, um, you know, even more prevalent. So we want to talk about that. And if you have any questions, you can send them to us ahead of time. There you go. Um, I think it's going to be a really, we have some professionals that will be appearing and a self-advocate, Russell Lehman. Um, so we're going to just put it all out there and be honest and real about this. Super proud of you. We'll be tuning in. Uh, that's on Tuesday afternoon, 5 p.m. Pacific time. And that's over at the Ed Asner Family Center. You can go to their website uh, to find all of their presentations there. So that's a really wonderful thing. We've got a great guest for you today on our show. We're going to be welcoming back Karen Nolte to be with us. Uh, she's a, an amazing researcher over at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, and she's going to be talking about some very important topics that are very near and dear, uh, at least to my heart, um, and um, and I think to yours as well, Nancy. Yes. Um, and uh, so we're excited to have her here. That's going to be coming up in a few minutes. But you know, on Fridays, we like to talk a little bit about in the news. Uh, I, I, I want us to start off with the hardest one because it's the researchiest one. You know, so we've been doing this for so long, Nancy, that there are times when we will talk about something that's being researched that shows promise and we'll go, all right, we'll stay tuned. We can't wait to hear what the next phase of that is. Right. Now we've been along, around long enough that we're able to start talking about some of the outcomes 
of further studies on things that showed promise. Unfortunately, all the news in the last couple of days is something that we were talking about a couple of years ago that we were all so excited about because it showed so much promise, uh, giving a nasal spray of um, oxytocin, right? Oxytocin, which is, we associate that a lot with a pregnancy drug when yes. you're giving birth, yes. um, but that people on the spectrum, they, they squirted it in nasally and found that their social skills were improved measurably. Okay. So we were all very excited about that. But a new study has come out today that has said, no, 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 no we're not seeing, we didn't get, we didn't replicate the results from it. And it's all over the news that like, no, it's not a thing. But there are a group of people who are saying, wait a second, before you throw the baby out with the bath water, there are some considerations to be made here that perhaps the parameters, they changed the parameters for the study and that that might have more to do with it. So they're saying, don't rush to judgment. Yes, we did not see it in this study, but a couple of things were changed in this study. So I just always like to bring that up, Nancy, because I think a lot of us just skim the headlines and go, oh, well, you know, it worked on two studies, the third one, it didn't work. And we go, why, what has that to do with it? And I think, quite honestly, the researchers don't even know, is my take from it. What did you walk away from it with? Yeah, um, I think, you know, it, the research may not show that, but there is strong maybe anecdotal evidence. Yeah, and and I, I what I walked away from it, from, too, is that perhaps the questions that people seem to have are about the amount that you're spraying up the nose, that that could have. Like, for instance, Nancy, there were, years ago, there were a bunch of people who were saying that um, with HBOT, that right. they were seeing, and this is the this is the study that we're talking about, uh, the SORS B trial, and the headline disappoints in autism. Um, the HBOT study, uh, th there were people who were getting very excited about doing HBOT with their children. You were actually one of those people that, because you had heard about things that it was doing, you wanted to try that with your child, correct? I actually went and bought a hyperbaric chamber, a soft core chamber for my home and did it for several years with Wyatt. Yeah. And then um, notably, the Center for Autism and Related Disorders partnered with some people to do a study um, to show if there if it made a difference. And everybody was so disappointed when the study came out because it showed that there wasn't a measurable um, difference. And so a lot of people just completely abandoned um, doing a hyperbaric oxygen tank. And the thing that made me so sad was some of the original studies showed that that suggested that there was some improvement, but it was in a hard tank. Hard chamber. Yeah. And and all of the studies were done in soft tank, right. Right. soft sided tanks, which is a, a marked difference in how much oxygen gets pumped in. And nobody can get any funding now to do a hard shell study. So I was, you know, I always like to bring up we're not comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges. Some things get changed. So I don't know, maybe it's quick to rush to judgment and say that it wasn't um, helpful, but I think it's important to note that whatever in this study, they did not see a difference um, in the outcome. So bummer, right? Bummer. Yeah, total bummer. Uh, but I, I also loved uh, more and more news out, outlets this week are putting out early, Nancy, for the first time I'm noticing this, early putting out suggestions locally for parents about how to cope with Halloween and autism. Uh, we're featuring a story from Dayton, Ohio this week, but I thought this was great. Yeah, it really was. It's it's actually a lot of tips from a family uh, with a son with autism, Riker, um, and they gave tips based on their experiences with Riker about how, um, because he was an eloper, um, how you can keep your kids safe and what types of safety precautions we should practice at Halloween for our kids on the spectrum. And so I thought some really helpful tips that they were talking about. We've things that we've featured on the show here before. Um, 
having tags on their shoes that identify them. We happen to love the folks that do have the company. If I need help, if I need help. Yes. That are tags that you can sew onto their shirts. You can, um, attach them to their shoes. Um, and it has, uh, the ability for somebody to contact you immediately. This, uh, this couple, this family also recommends, registering your child with your local police department as somebody who elopes so that if something happens on the night of Halloween, it's not news to everybody. That if you call up and say, uh, hey, my child, uh, you know, we're, you know, we've lost track of my child. Uh, I mean, nobody wants to get to that point, right? Can we just be honest about that? But, but it happens. It happens. So to, to take care of it beforehand, uh, I think uh, amazing. They also recommend talking. We talked about this last week with Vince Redman about talking to your neighbors mm -hmm. about your child and letting them know that you're going to be trick-or-treating and that you're going to be out and what your child's difficulties are. Um, I, I thought it was super duper helpful. And they um, also let their local police know about their son. Yes. Um, so the police had the, their son's name is Riker. Um, so they had him on the radar and they said, uh, they recommended giving a current photo, proof of autism diagnosis and contact information to the officers to have on record. I think it's a, a, a great idea. Uh, what a pivot now, uh, we're Nancy, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a little bit of a, a nut for Hallmark movies in particular, oh, the Christmas that. ones. You did not know that. No. The last two years, I set myself the task that they, they released like 34 movies a year okay. and that between they start next week on the 22nd. I know because I'm a nut about them um, and they run until about January 6th and they they play and they replay them. And uh, so you get many opportunities to watch each one of the movies. And my goal is always to watch all of the new movies uh -huh. each year which is insane and no one should want to do that. That's an insane amount of time. Um, but I've been successful. I think the two years ago, there was one movie I didn't get to see. And this last year, there was one movie that I didn't get to see, but then I got to watch it in Christmas in July. <laughs> this is how big of a nut I am. I absolutely live and breathe for the Hallmark movies. And you know, our good friend, Holly Robinson, Pete, is a regular over there. Every year she does at least one movie. In fact, sometimes she's in three movies because they have some movies that are, they, they, uh, you know, they have sequels after them. And um, so I think last year she was in three. I think it was a record. Okay. Hallmark Christmas movies. They love her. We love her. Um, so absolutely wonderful. So this year, look at this, how amazing for the first time they have one of the featured characters. I mean, they've had characters before, but one of the featured characters, one of the leads in the movie is, uh, it's, and Holly is playing the mom and uh, the character is a son on the spectrum, very close to Holly's real life, but he's being played by an actor who is on the spectrum. And it is the central point of a Hallmark movie. I am so proud. And, and of course, Holly is one of the producers on the movie. And she says that she wanted to do this partially for her son, RJ. Um, but I love it. The name of the movie is The Christmas Bond. I can't stand it. I'm so excited about it. And it will be uh, premiering sometime between now and the end of the year. So I'm excited to watch this movie and see how this is handled. I know that in Holly's hands, this is probably going to be done really well. Um, so Nancy, I'll be talking about this endlessly for the next month and a half. Okay. Yeah. It says the, the storyline is as a single mom, Holly, and her teenage son with autism, played by this young actor by the name of Nick Sanchez, uh, come to a crossroad during Christmas. She must learn to let go so he can flourish and find her own heart healing in unexpected ways. I just, I absolutely love this. And of course, Holly's been up in Canada. That's, uh, you know, they film these movies in a lot of different places, but one of the places that they film is in Canada. Uh, they also film in Utah. I love that 
so many of my friends are, are in these movies because I have many friends who from the theater world who live in Utah. It's always fun to watch a movie and see another one of my friends there featured. Um, but the other part of the story that we want to tell is that uh, Holly has three sons and one daughter. And um, Holly was up in Canada filming. Her two youngest sons came up to visit her there. And Rodney, her husband, Rodney Pete, was elsewhere working. And for whatever reason, the two boys, and if I'm not mistaken, one of them is over 18 and the other one is younger than 18, I think. Um, but she was sending them back home to meet up with the rest of her family back in L.A. and her husband. And they bought tickets for the two boys to fly business class and Air Canada. They got to the airport to get on the flight. And you know, it's a pandemic. It's crazy at the airport, they tell me. Um, but they pulled these two young men aside and asked for proof that they had permission to use the credit card to, that bought the tickets. And Holly was on set. They couldn't get a hold of her. They couldn't get a hold of her dad, their dad. And they didn't allow them to fly, yeah, held them, yes. held them overnight. Which and really, yeah, this is a disturbing situation. It is that a very disturbing. Yeah, that there was not somebody to intervene and help figure this out. Well, and why were they pulled aside to begin with? I think this is right. the question that we need to start with. And, and it's not okay. No. And I, you know, I, um, just want to say, you know, if you're not following Holly on Instagram, I got an Instagram just so I could follow Holly on Instagram. I'm not even on Instagram very much, but she's like the one person I follow on Instagram. Um, and she wrote on Instagram, she said, thank you to everyone who sent kind and supportive messages regarding what happened to two of my sons on Monday night. Uh, they were visiting me on location in Vancouver. They should never have been asked to produce a credit card, which paid for two business class seats. I've been flying this airline to Vancouver for 35 years since the 21 Jump Street days and have never had to produce the credit card that paid for the ticket. But apparently they were flagged and um, and were told since they could not verify this, they could not board. And then the gate agent left them stranded at the ticket counter with no resolution in a foreign country. One of my boys is a minor, last flight out. I was two hours away shooting in a remote part of British Columbia and could not get to the airport. And their dad and I were both on the phone, but the gate agent refused to talk to us. That part, I didn't remember. Uh, I had to put them up in a, air, in a hotel. Air Canada did not offer that option. And then I paid to rebook them on a morning flight, which thankfully they were allowed to board without producing the credit card this time. I feel this is a policy that is selective and really needs to be looked at and they need to do much better. I'll let you know when I have some response resolution from them. And the last I had heard, obviously we're pre-taping this show, the last I had heard there had been no response from Air Canada. Mm. Because, and I imagine it's because what response is there? This is, this is horrifying. And I can't help but keep thinking, Nancy, this is terrible on any front, but can you imagine if it was her son on the spectrum? Right. Um, you know, and I don't want to belittle that it was her two other sons. This is not appropriate in any way, shape or form. But as a mom, I'm sure for Holly, as a mom of multiple kids, you know, and, and having one who has some different challenges, you know, that sends an extra shiver, but this is not okay on any, uh, on any platform. I, I can just remember years ago when Holly was with us and uh, on the show and she was talking about having to have the talk with her son, with RJ, about, you know, understanding that the world wasn't always going to be safe for him because of the color of his skin. And I remember just being just going, oh my gosh, you know, like how much harder is this uh, for, and I, and I have so many friends who have had the talk with their kids, but how much harder is it when we're talking to somebody on the spectrum? Right. Um, I, I, I'm just devastated for our friend. This is horrible. Yeah, Hopefully this will get some resolution and she'll hear from Air Canada. And knowing Holly, Holly will turn this into a teaching moment for the world. 
Absolutely. Um, that, you know, that this may not happen to somebody else, but I'm sorry that it happened to begin with. So yeah. ugh, to that. Uh, also want to give a shout out. Uh, I noticed in the news that there is a new research study being done at BYU, Brigham Young University, where I used to teach. Um, so that sort of resonated with me that they're looking right now for families. Uh, we shared a study a couple of weeks ago, the Gemma study that is also looking for families. This is a little bit different. The, it's just participation online. They want to know uh, the study is about sensory processing and intolerance of uncertainty in autistic individuals during the COVID-19 pandemic, a mixed approach. So they, they want you to take a survey um, about how the pandemic um, may have raised anxiety, may have created more sensory issues. They're looking at this very closely. And I, for one, can't wait to see what the, what this, um, what, news they get from this because we all know that our that our kids were affected by this and that their sensory we've we've been affected by it right so how could they not have been you and i were just talking about this yesterday all the uncertainty oh my goodness um it, it sounds relatively simple too shannon it says participation is taking place online so it's being done with a good wi-fi connection and a smartphone or laptop computer and first the family will complete an online questionnaire and possibly participate in a Zoom interview. So it sounds very simple. And if you participate in phase one, where, where it's just you answering questions online, um, just for filling out the survey about it, you're entered into a drawing to win one of four $50 Amazon gift cards. If you are chosen to participate in the Zoom interview part of it, you'll be compensated at the rate of $30 an hour, which is nothing to sneeze at. Um, they're hoping that they can find out information um, that will help for more, a more large scale uh, study about certain uncertainty with having to do with autism and families dealing with autism. So if you want to participate, if you're like, all right, I want to have something to do with that. You want to contact the study coordinator, whose name is Molly, but that's M-O-L-L-I-E Bradley. Um, and the email that I'm going to give you, get your pencils ready, byu.ask.covid19study at gmail.com. So that's byu.ask.covid19study, all one, at gmail.com. There we go. And if you wanted to call, if you wanted a phone number to call someone, you could call um, 801-422-5977. That's 801-422-5977. Wonderful. So those are our news stories for today. We're welcoming back to the show, Karen Nolte, who is uh, a semi-regular here at the show and uh, is heads up the research department at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. Karen, are you with us? I am. I'm glad to be on today. So thrilled that you're here. And so uh, I just referenced the Gemma um, study because uh, you were on just a couple of weeks ago talking about that. Uh, I didn't I didn't mention it that you have the opportunity if you want to also talk, just tell people how to contact you about that, because we're hoping that people are signing up to participate in that study as well. But you're here today to talk with us about a different set of research that we had asked you about probably midsummer, I think. I think so. So you had a request that you passed on to us about recovery. Um, so that's what I want to talk about today. And first, I think it's important to talk about what recovery is and what it isn't. Um, so first of all, you know, in most of the research, recovery is a term that means that the child has meets three criteria. So number one, they no longer meet the criteria for autism. Number two, they have IQ scores within the average range or above. And number three, they're in a regular education classroom without supports. So in general, recovery means that the child is following a neurotypical developmental path. And I, I like to point out recovery is not the same as a cure for autism. And it doesn't mean that the core personality of the child has changed. Thank you. I appreciate that because I think that's confusing to people a lot that, um, you know, it gets, it's a sensitive topic. And I, I want to say that I know that the word 
recovery and recovered are really sensitive words to a lot of people. Um, and, you know, that have said to me, Shannon, please don't use this word anymore. They, they find it insensitive. I think it's really important to, to listen to people when they say that they don't like a word. Um, but I also want to make sure that we're, we're defining the word correctly. As Karen just said, it's not about changing the person. If I, if I, you know, I'm Shannon and if I want to learn to speak Chinese, um, it's, it will elevate me to be able to do things that maybe, and, and I'll have epiphanies about it, but I will learn Chinese. It does not change who I am. Uh, it's just a skill that I learn. And, and when we see people who have quote unquote recovered on the autism spectrum, they are still uniquely themselves. Their brain still works in a uniquely way that you know, is their unique way. They process information in a different way. Nobody has changed that, but they are able to do things and have gained skills that they, they no longer qualify for a disability diagnosis. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Um, I, I think that it is. So while I respect everybody's feelings about the word, I have said before, I, I won't stop talking about the concept of it. Right. And, and there's, there's other terms that can be used too. the term optimal outcomes is sometimes used. I don't know how, how much better that term is. I mean, what we're looking for is for our kids to succeed and have high quality outcomes, living a quality life. I mean, that's what we're all looking for here. Um, so for those parents who are hoping for recovery, optimal outcomes, something similar for their child, what I wanted to talk about was, was those predictors of recovery or signs that the child is likely to recover. Okay. So there's an article from 2008 uh, by Helton colleagues, and they took a look at the literature at the time. And I know it's a bit old at this point, but it really provides a comprehensive overview of, of predictors of recovery. Um, and they broke them into two different segments, child factors and intervention factors. So first I'll talk about child factors that can influence outcomes. And a lot of these are, are kind of common sense, so to speak, <laughs> you know, kids who have greater communication abilities, higher IQs, greater motor imitation skills, greater motor skills in general before they start treatment uh, are, are likely more likely to recover than kids who don't have that level of, of skill set. Um, so, you know, that may be kind of obvious, but, you know, sometimes we like to have the literature, you know, tell us these things. <laughs> um, some other things that, that are predictors are um, in the opposite direction. If a child has seizure activity early on, that's a predictor of poor outcomes, unfortunately. Um, and also individuals who have what's sometimes termed secondary autism, you know, autism and Down syndrome, autism and fragile X, autism and a genetic disorder, they tend to, to not be individuals who recover and have those optimal outcomes either. Um, but one really surprising thing that they found in this study was that severity of autistic symptoms is not a good predictor of those optimal outcomes. And I found that to be, to be a bit surprising. So when children are young, we really, you know, there, there are certain predictors that can kind of indicate that they're gonna recover, but there's, you know, severity of autistic symptoms is not one of them. I find that fascinating. Nancy, have you ever heard that before? No, I had not heard that. Because, uh, you know, I one of the things that we talk about is, to, you know, to caregivers is don't let anybody tell you what your outcome is going to be. Like, don't let, don't let anybody tell you. I don't know about Nancy, but I was told early on to release my expectations of my son and take him home and enjoy him and let go of a future that I had dreamt of. Um, that is largely what his future looks like now. I was told to let go of that, to just let it go, let it slide into the ocean. Uh, I chose not to do that. Um, and I was looking for somebody who could tell me that there was the potential, the potential for more hope. Um, but, but even for us, when we started our intervention, we had no idea of where we would end up. And, and so I tell people, you, you gotta, you gotta give it your all without knowing where you end up. Now, Nancy, I think your trajectory, your trajectory, I can't even speak this morning, uh, was a little bit different in that, you know, you kind of got held up in the beginning by that whole PDD NOS nonsense, correct? Yeah. Got a, uh, 
inaccurate diagnosis of PBBNOS uh, when he was three and didn't get a full-on autism diagnosis until he was into his fourth year. So um, even though it was pretty obvious that he had had an autism diagnosis once I learned what the, uh, the signs were of autism. Um, but uh, the school psychologist who, di who diagnosed him originally with PDD-NOS did not see delays in all three areas. She didn't indicate delays in all three areas. Yeah. Whereas for my son, he did, um, you know, and was considered moderate to severe on that first day when he was two and a half. Um, so, you know, so you start the path, you do everything you can and you wait to see how, how it goes. Everybody's outcome is different, hard to predict, but interesting to hear that severity of the symptom is not a predictor of outcome. I feel like that's a little bit of a positive for, for many uh families. I agree. I agree. It, it can give you some hope. And like you said, there's so many, there's such an array of, of what may happen. We, we can't, even though we have these predictors, we can't predict to a T what's going to happen to any given child. Yeah. Um, so what else you got for us? Sure. So I'll move into intervention factors next because I tend to like those better because we have some measure of control over them. You know, we can't change what a child's language level is when, when they start intervention. Um, so we do know that children who start intervention earlier do better and that children who respond faster to, to intervention when they start tend to do better. And, and those are the children who are more likely to recover. And we know that ABA um, high quality ABA is really important in those best outcomes for children. Are we going to talk about, because one of the things that I talk about all the time are um, the, because Dr. Dixon had done some studies about uh, what, once you're in intervention, what are sort of the hallmarks? Are you going to talk about those things of, of like who ends up having the best outcomes? Um, in terms of, uh, like well, what, I was looking what you do. <laughs> I have a little bit about that. I'm not sure okay. if it's exactly let me let, what you're thinking about. Yeah. Let, so, let me let you talk. Okay. <laughs> you know okay. more than I do. <laughs> well, so I've got a couple other things to share and they're not on recovery specifically, but they're just on outcomes more broadly. And there's a lot more research on outcomes more broadly and who tends to do better and what factors of intervention are at play there. Um, so in 2020, Tao and colleagues reviewed some studies that examined the relationship between the early ability of the child um, and the age the child started intervention. And what I thought was interesting is they looked at combinations of, of predictors and they found that the younger the child and the more effective the treatment, the bigger the gains. And, and again, I think this is one of those things that makes a lot of sense, um, but it's nice to see, okay, that that's in the literature here. Um, and some interesting things that this study found that, that I didn't see previously, they had one study in the, in the group that they reviewed showed that maternal age and education were significant predictors of outcomes. But I think even more importantly, two of the studies found that the effectiveness of the mother in learning and implementing the intervention strategies had a positive impact on the child's outcomes. And I think that's something that I know I talk a lot about with families is that their involvement plays such a big role in how far their child can go. There's a part of me that wonders, though, if it's if part of that is mother's education is linked to it. I wonder if if did we look at and this is putting you on the spot. You may not even know um, because we see that a lot of people have a great deal of difficulty accessing mm -hmm. the treatment. And so if you know, I mean, I say always when I speak that I understand that I am a person who is entitled and feels entitled and I ask questions. I don't have any compunction asking a question, but I know people who don't feel that they have a right to ask and are afraid to ask questions and, and that that can be detrimental to their child when they're on the autism spectrum. And I always say, think about that mom who does, does, not, ha does not have papers to legally be in, in the place that she is in does not speak the language of where she is in, does she feel entitled to go and get her child the therapy that her child needs? And I think the question is often no. 
Um, so I wonder if those, I, I wonder if it really has to do with your education as much as your feeling of, you know, knowing that there would be services and feeling entitled to ask for them. That's such a great point. And I, I didn't prepare this, but just from the top of my head, I know that there is literature out there that shows that uh, autistic children who are come from non-white backgrounds access services later, they get their diagnosis later. Um, and, and that's, you know, if you put language issues on top of that, you know, families who don't speak English and if they're in the United States, that just makes it that much harder. So we have a lot of issues of equity in the field of that, that you know, we don't have too much good research on the impacts that has on outcomes. Yeah, I mean, Nancy, I always use you as an example. When you take somebody who is as in the, the world that you were existing in at that time and as powerful as you were in that world, you know, a, a producer on mainstream television and, and the trouble that you had accessing services, if Nancy Allspot Jackson was having trouble accessing services, then you know that it was, it's hard. It's hard yeah. to access services. I often thought that, Shannon, like if, if I'm having this much trouble, what about mom who has English as a second language, who yeah. um, has, you know, multiple children, who has to maybe work in a, in a job that uh, she doesn't have access, doesn't have the hours or the access to finding the information. Um, you know, I thought there, but for the grace of God, go I. And uh, yeah, that occurred to me quite often as I was in my yeah. struggle to get services. You got to be pushy in the extreme. I think yes. we all found that. So that's interesting though, and devastating, Karen, that that shows up in outcome. <laughs> But uh, uh, there's another, you know, there's always studies that show a little bit of a different angle here. So if I bring it up a little bit here, Fuller and Kaiser in 2020, were looking at the impact of early intervention, specifically on social communication outcomes. Mm -hmm. And in their literature search, they found a study that showed the largest gains were when interventions included both a parent and a therapist. Um, but Fuller and Kaiser, you know, dug into the, to the literature a little bit more looking across studies and they found that looking at intervention delivered by clinicians, parents and school staff, uh, school staff had the worst outcomes. Um, mm -hmm. The greater impact was seen when the intervention was delivered by clinicians or parents and intervention delivered by clinicians was number one. Sure. Yeah. That makes so, sense. Yeah, That makes sense. I mean, you just described who has the most training right? Mm -hmm. the clinicians have the most training and, <laughs> and really motivated parents have the second amount and school officials have the least amount of training. This We talk about this all the time. So um, that doesn't surprise me, but I, I hope that it motivates all of you as parents to learn what your team is doing. Learn from them, force them to teach you. Yeah? Definitely. And the last study that I have kind of brings that to another level. And this is, this is, we only recently this, this uh, topic was addressed in terms of quality of the intervention of ABA. Um, was done by Lang and colleagues in 2020. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that name wrong. Apologize to them if I'm butchering their name. Um, but what they did is they assessed the quality of the early intensive behavior intervention at baseline and then assessed it after four to six months. And shocking, uh, maybe not so shocking, the quality of the treatment had an impact on outcomes. But what I think was most interesting was they dialed into the specific aspects of quality that had the biggest um, impact on outcomes. And what they found was um, a couple different items, treatment organization, the teaching level, use of differential reinforcement and error correction were the most highly associated with outcomes. So felt like I threw a lot of alphabet soup out there. <laughs> But that's super cool. I want you to slow down and go over those again, because people are always asking me, what's the difference between quality ABA and schlocky ABA? And I have my bag of tricks as a parent that I go, look for this, look for this, look for this. But some of what you just said is not on my list. So go over that slowly for me. Yeah. So we'll start with treatment organizations. So that's really uh, clinicians who are well-prepared, have all of their materials, have a clear teaching plan and distinct learning goals. Okay. You know, so that's what that is looking at. Um, teaching level is really looking at a couple different things, but part of it is making sure that the instruction matches where the child is at. Um, Makes differential, sense. Yeah, yeah. Differential reinforcement is all about 
providing reinforcers, providing good things to the child when they do things that, that, that we want them to do, um, and providing bigger quantities of that for the really important stuff, you know? So when the kid talks for the first time, you know, that's a huge deal. That's a big party. And then we kind of dial it back as, as, as that skill becomes more, more and more common for that child. And then when the next new skill comes up, you know, when they ask their first why question, oh my goodness, this is an amazing thing. Um, and, and, you know, kind of differentiating how you're responding to those, those uh, things the child is doing. Yeah, I always call it moving the goalposts. Yep. Because when I remember when my son was first learning to pee in the potty and every time he peed in the potty, it was a big, big deal. Um, you know, it was a big celebration. Um, but, you know, obviously he, he's going to college now. We're not still celebrating every time he pees in the potty. And from, from where the beginning to here, we had to, you know, at a certain point, then, then we celebrated, uh, you know, every third time that he went pee in the potty and then we celebrated a little bit less. And then we celebrated when he washed his hands afterwards and pulled up his own pants. We just kept moving the goalposts further away until we weren't on the potty thing at all anymore. We were reinforcing a new behavior. So, um, so being mindful about what you're teaching and reinforcing what you're teaching, but constantly be moving it along, uh, sounds like it's important. Yes, and, and that continual push is so key to keep our kids learning and learning and learning so they can catch up and learn the skills that are going to help them be successful. And make it rewarding to them to keep uh, doing that. It's like, you know, if you were in a job, in the same job, doing the same thing every day, and you got the same amount of pay year in, year out, and never got a raise, after a while, it would get, you know, you wouldn't be trying as hard, right? Isn't that why we give people raises? So that they want to do more. Um, we have to give our kids raises. So was there one more thing on your list? There was one more thing, and that's error correction. And I think that's the most... Uh, you know, specific terminology of the bunch here. This is all about how to respond to the child when they when they do something that's incorrect. Not necessarily incorrect in the sense of, you know, hitting someone else, but incorrect in the sense of, of you know, in a teaching moment, giving the wrong answer. So when, you know, you ask the child a question, um, maybe something like, um, I'm on why questions today, you know, why, why did the, did the cup fall over? Um, and the correct answer is, you know, oh, you know, mom pushed it over, you know, or mom accidentally bumped her elbow into it. Um, if they give the wrong answer, air correction is talking all about, okay, how do we respond mm. to help the child get to the right answer? And it's, it's a lot of technical, you know, pieces to that, but having a really solid, clear plan about that is what's important in terms of the impact on the child's success. All right. So there's no absolute, this is how you should respond. It's different per kid, per lesson, per situation. But having a plan about it that's mindful is what's important. Well, exactly. that's all pretty trippy. That's all uh, very, very interesting. Nancy, does it make your head hurt? No, I think it's all very, um, seems very logical, actually, all of these things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Uh, okay. So was that the sum total of what you were going to talk about, Karen? I never know when you're done. We should have a signal. <laughs> we should, we should. That is, that is what I prepared, but I think you had a question and I don't know if I can, um, if, if there was another angle you wanted to go down that I can. Uh, well, address. when I'm, when I'm talking to caregivers, I don't know, remember when it was, but at some point card did a study and what I walked away from it with was that I took back to the caregivers that I quote all the time. And I don't know how much of it is actually from Dr. Dixon's study and how much of it is what I extrapolated, but I'm always about three things. Uh, when Jem went to high school at his orientation, one of the teachers said, look, there's three things you have to do. And if you just do these three things, I guarantee you, you'll, you'll have some success. And, and, you know, and, and her th yeah. three things were, you have to show up, because I'm a good teacher, this is before the pandemic, I think she lived to rue these words. She said, I'm a good teacher, but I can't teach you if you're not here. Then she yeah. found out she really could do that, uh, but maybe a little less effectively. But she said, so I need for you to be here and mm -hmm. I need for you to do your homework and I need for you to ask questions. And if you're ever not doing well, ask yourself which one of those three things you're not doing. Well, that resonated big with me.
And then shortly after that, Dr. Dixon talked about this study that they did at CARD. And the three things that I walked away with were that I thought that from what he said that I thought were the predictors of success was number one, the number of hours of opportunity. How many hours does your kid have? To me, that is equal to you have to be here. You guys are brilliant clinicians, but if your kid isn't working with the clinician, then it doesn't matter how good a teacher they are, right? (laughs) So so that equaled that one for me. The number two thing that uh, I heard from the study was that you need to have uh, an experienced BCBA somewhere with eyes on your program, that that was a predictor of outcome. And I loved, I I love at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders that you guys have this like hive mind where people, even what I call the baby BCBAs are mentored by the experienced BCBAs and you have a weekly meeting where they can throw out ideas and discuss together and say, has anybody ever seen this happen before? And all these BCBAs talk to each other. So, So I loved that. And then the third one, was that the more parents learned about the intervention and implemented it themselves, the the better the kids did, which for me goes back to the first thing, which was the opportunity of hours. And that Dr. Grampiche always says that when they did the original LOVA study, that they, they were saying 40 hours a week of professional intervention, but they asked the parents to go home and do every waking hour. And what I say to caregivers is if you think about it, uh, I'm always looking for the control. I want control of the outcome, right? Well, as a parent, you have control of how, to some degree, uh, how how much you make your child available. Did you make your child available for 15 hours or did you make them available for 30 hours? What was the prescription? Was the prescription for 35? Did you make them available for that and get them to therapy for that? Um, And so that's within your control. And picking uh, an agency where you have an experienced BCBA on your case is largely within your control and how much you learn is largely within your control. So I love to share that with caregivers and say, hey, if you if you're if things aren't going well, go back and go, which one of these three things are we not doing? Because um, I think that that's a great way of slimming it down. Um, <laughs> but you've given me some other things to think about, Karen. Yeah, definitely. I actually had the the dosage on my notes and I don't know why I took it off, but I think that's such an important thing. And and what we found in that study with uh, Dr. Dixon was that there was no point of diminishing returns, at which point there was a certain number of hours where where we saw fewer, fewer, um, fewer things being learned by the child. Um, so when you say no diminishing returns, because I don't, you know, I don't think a lot of us know what that means. So if there, there was no place where if you were doing 40 hours where it was like, well, five of those were wasted. Right. Um, it, they were all worthwhile. See, every once in a while, Nancy, I don't know if you know, sometimes I'll talk to a parent who will say to me, well, you know, our prescription is for 30 hours and we're doing 15, which is pretty much the same thing. And I literally break out into hives and start thinking about jumping off a bridge. Because I and I will stop and I will go. I'm I'm sorry. You have to explain this to me. How is 15 the same as 30 in anything? And they're like, you know, it's pretty much the same. It's the you know. And I'm like, no. Like, explain to me. I'm going to give you 15 cupcakes or 30 cupcakes. They are not the same. And certainly, if you went to the gym for 15 hours or you went for 30 hours, not the same. And and. ABA therapy, 15 hours of, and and you know what? I can't even talk, you know, to those parents. What I say to them is I have a challenge for you. (laughs) Like I, I, I hear that you think that they're the same. I just want to play. What if, what if they aren't? And I will challenge a parent and say, can you just for three weeks do 30 hours, which is what your prescription is. Cause I say, do whatever your prescription is. When the doctor gives you the prescription of penicillin, if you don't take the prescription, you know, you know, you're going to have problems at some point, right? Just do the prescription. If that's what insurance is going to fund, why wouldn't you, right? Mm-hmm. I understand it's hard to do, but just for three weeks, just do it. And then tell me if you see a difference in your child. And, you know, there's never been a case where somebody came back and said, yeah, nope, it's the same. They come back and they go, holy business. I had no idea my child could learn that much that fast. So... Uh, because otherwise I would have to like seriously light my hair on fire and run screaming through the streets when people say to me, 15 is the same as 30. 
it's definitely Nancy, not the same. <laughs> Nancy, do you, because I, I know you talk to a lot of parents too. I, I don't know if that, if you get the same questions that I get, but that's the one that makes me full on bonkers. Oh yeah. I mean, quantity, quality of hours, obviously key and quantity is obviously key. Um, yeah. And, you know, a lot of parents have challenges in getting their kids having their kids accessible for ABA, uh, getting to clinic. Another big thing you hear a lot of, you know, we can't make it to clinic. We, we can't get access. Both parents can't get there. Um, you know, you have to make this a priority. That's yeah. just there is to it. It has to be your priority. Yes. And I, you know, uh, I, I love my good friend, Nancy Allspot Jackson used to say, you have to be a dog on a pork chop. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the truth never let go never let go be a dog on a pork chop and because it's hard can we can we admit that it's hard and that everything under the sun gets in the way yeah i mean i just for it. example um had a uh, situation here today where i had to take wyatt out of school for his clinic um you know i could have said no we're not available but the only hours that we could do um, it's one o'clock, so he doesn't get out of school till three. So I took him out of school so he could yeah. have access to his clinic. But I love that about you, Nancy. Well, I know how important it is. Yeah, you know but important. I but I love that you walk your talk. Had to do it, Karen. This is a lot, and I'm sure that as people heard this, I had emotions. Did you have emotions, Nancy? Definitely. It's hard. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd go to the shoulda, woulda, coulda because he got the late diagnosis and we didn't get as early intervention as I would have liked. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you just got to do the best you can with what you've got. Yeah. And move forward, move forward. Yeah. It's hard to hear these things no matter where your child is because if you're at the beginning, it feels like you're staring at Mount Everest and how are you ever going to be able to do it, right? If you're in the middle of it, it's like, oh my gosh, I, what more can I possibly do? If your child is older, I think we all do the coulda, woulda, shoulda, did I do this? Did I do that? Um, but I, I still think it's important to talk about it. I think that this is an important concept. Um I hope that someday we'll find another phrase for it, Karen. I don't think the optimal outcome encompasses the feeling of what, what we want, but I also think that the recovered, that word carries, it's funny how it's always the R words, right? It carries weight that is hard. It hurts people. So I hope that we're going to come up with another word for it. Do you know what doctors, uh, Nancy, do you know what doctors say now when kids are on the spectrum documented and no longer can be fit the, the, the diagnosis, they're calling it remission. Remission. Is that remission? Another R word. Is that not the craziest thing? They code it as autism in remission because it's, it's new enough for a lot of doctors. They're not sure that the child is not going to regress later on. Right. Which is, but I think it's also another potentially offensive term right? Um, I hope that someday we'll come up with a different word that will suggest all the wonderful things that we know can happen without including all of the connotation that is negative. So yeah, remission, that's a interesting choice because you think of it? that as an illness that is temporarily um, in check, stalled in check and has the possibility of coming back at any point. Yeah. It's got a stinky smell to it, yeah. honestly. Um, and, and I know people who've had that reaction to recover. They, they're like, recovered suggests that something was wrong with me and you fixed it. And there was nothing wrong with me to begin with. Um, and I hear that. I want people to know that I hear that. And I feel that I, I want somebody to nominate a new word that doesn't start with an R. <laughs> Even if we have to make a new word up. Um, people make up words all the time. Let's get a new word in the Oxford English Dictionary, shall we? Uh, maybe we should have a contest about mm -hmm. let's come up with a new word to to uh, what to classify someone when they qualified for a diagnosis of a disorder and then they gain enough skills so that they no longer qualify as a disorder. What like what, what shall we call that? Uh, <laughs> 
let's let's get that out to the yeah. community. Let's. I think we. I think we got a contest. <laughs> here. How about mastery? Mastery. Mastery. A mastery. Of well, but that's already a term that means very specific things. So I think we should just invent a new word. Put letters together on a Scrabble board and invent a new word and say, you know, it's fahuna. <laughs> that's what that term is. <laughs> I don't care what it is. Let's have a contest. I like it. Uh, I want to do that. But Karen, I so appreciate and respect and admire the work that you do every day. You're, you, I know you spend some time out in the field, but then you also spend time doing research and delving into research um, for all of the experts that are at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. So you help to assimilate all the, because there's so much new stuff every day. Uh, and and I always say, how does how does somebody keep up on all that? And I love that you work to make sure that the experts at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders are up on all that research. Super cool. Yeah, we do our best. <laughs> well, we respect job. it in there. We really do. An amazing job. Thank you. So thank you so much for being with us, and we look forward to having you back on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much. I look forward to that too. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, so Nancy, we have just a couple of minutes here uh, yeah, left. I'm not going to be here next week. That's right. But I'm did I tell you who is going to be here? And you're going to want to be here when you find out who is going to be here. I'm going to be jealous of who you are going to. You are going to be. And here's what happened: we were planning on not doing a show that day, but then I called Temple, and that's the only day she's available. Oh, and I was like, no. and I was like, well, we do have it available. So Dr. Temple Grandin is going to be here a week from today. We're taking questions right now. Um, if people want to want to be here, um, she will be live with us on Friday, the 22nd. But I know you guys always want to write in live and have your question answered live. Um, and she that just that's just not how she likes to do things because so often you'll ask a question and somebody else asks a question and they're related. Like, you, you know, somebody asks a question about reading comprehension for a 12 year old and somebody else asks it for a 14 year old and she's not gonna answer both questions. She wants them melded together. How can I help my teen gain reading comprehension, right? Um, so that's just because we get we get hundreds of questions. So we ask that you send them in early. You can send them to me at Shannon at autism-live.com. Uh, we're taking those right now. Don't miss it though, because um, she's going to be with us live. We haven't had her on pretty much all summer. And I, I'll tell you what I, the first thing I'm going to ask her, Nancy, uh, is did she watch William Shatner go into space? Mm. I, I sat last night after the fact and watched a lot of it, and um, it was fascinating. Isn't that exciting? It was just fantastic. It was fascinating, and I, I want to get her take on it. But, you know, we do a lot of live stuff, and I would be the first person to say that a lot of times we're, like, flying by the seat of our pants. We're, we don't have a big budget. Um, you know, we'll be live someplace, and the feed goes in and out. But here we have Jeff Bezos who has enough money to make a rocket to take people like William Shatner out into space. And the, and the, the rocket goes up and they've got all this camera footage and all this, whatever. And they, and it's only up there for 10 minutes from takeoff to landing. It's 10 minutes. I said to my husband, it's a very expensive bungee ride, uh, bungee jumping ride, but cool, super duper cool. And captain Kirk, come on. Um, but the thing comes down and it lands in the desert and, and the trucks surround and they knew about where it was going to land. So Jeff Bezos is there. The thing lands and Jeff Bezos pulls up in the, the pickup truck and gets out. And he's the one who opens the door to let the, the team out and Shatner out. And yet they didn't have they, 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 they had cameras, but they couldn't figure it out. So Shatner is standing in shadow saying how like this changed his whole life. You, you get the audio, although there's all this noise in the background. I just want to turn to everybody and go, can you shut up? <laughs> Shatner is telling us what it was like for him to go to space. And, and you can't see his face because he's in shadow because they've got him facing the wrong way. And I'm, and I'm like, how, how did they not have somebody who knew what they were doing on the ground to get this? But what he says is that he'll never, ever, ever be the same. 
and that and that every single he he bursts into tears at one point and he says to Bezos, thank you so much. You need to make this so that everyone can go, because if everyone can go, he says, there's this blue, you're in this blue, 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 and you look ahead and it's black. And you realize how amazing Earth is, all the good things that we have here, how much we have to take care of it, how, you know, how much we need to appreciate what we have. And, and he's like, if everybody could see that, it would be change the world. The world would um, be a better place. Yeah. The world would be a better place. And um, so anyway, um, I want to ask Temple, did she see it and what did she think? But that's what I want to know. What do you guys want to know? You need to write to us. And Nancy, I'm so sorry. Uh, I wasn't deliberate, I promise you. I'll be with you in spirit. Have a I love that. Show with her. You have fun on your vacay and okay. have a really good time. And I'm I'm jealous because you're going to see all the fall colors. I'm going to see the fall colors. I'm going to be in New York and Connecticut and Woodstock, New York and Manhattan and Southport, Connecticut. So it should be beautiful this time of year. Yes. I hope that you have a wonderful time. And we'll have Temple on again another time when you're here. And then when the week after next, we have our Halloween show. That's right. And for those of you who've never watched our Halloween show, Nancy and I kind of go all out. So uh, we've already decided who we're going to be. We're not going to tell you because that's a big secret, but I think it's going to be fun. Are you excited about it, Nancy? I'm excited. Yeah. I am. I'm excited about it. So that will be uh, on the 29th, right? Yeah. All right. So until then, you guys, we hope that you have great fall fun. Please uh, give uh, give a, a hug to your kiddos. And give yourselves a hug from me. There we go. So uh, bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.